take your seats. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I do hope you bring your Bible out to Point Pleasant on Sunday evenings. It is our regular habit to be working our way verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And this is what we're doing through Galatians. And it's helpful to have the text there on your lap as we study together. So come to Galatians 3. We need to remember both the situation that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians and and the case he is making. The situation is the one that was all too common in the early church and all too common in our day. Christianity was misunderstood. Christianity, the law, it was thought that Christianity was like every other religion, like Islam and Judaism and every other pagan religion where you were given a law, you were given a, a ladder by which you could work your way step by step, doing the thing, paying the fine, paying the tax, paying the all, uh, making the trip, being good to get up to God and be justified, set right before Him. The Judaizers, the false teachers, had come into the Galatian churches and had confused everyone, saying that the, the way to be right with God, justified, is to keep the Old Testament law and to keep it well. That's the situation on the ground. And Paul is making his case. He's making his case in that these Judaizers, these false teachers are essentially de-Christianizing Christianity. They're taking the very heart right out of the church, making it what it isn't, a a religion of law rather than a religion of grace. So as he's making his case, he's come now in chapter 3 to making his case from the Old Testament. Last time we were together, we studied uh, verse 6 through verse 14. Paul making his case from uh, the story of Abraham. That even at the very beginning, God's covenant with Abraham was by faith and not by law keeping. Not by works of righteousness that he might merit his place before God. No, it's always been from the beginning. Look at Abraham. He didn't merit. He didn't earn his standing with God at all. It was all by grace. Come to verse 15, our text for this evening and following. He begins to anticipate their questions and cut them off at the pass. Like like a good boxer who's bobbing and weaving. He's seeing where they're coming. Let's let's read Paul's continued case here in Galatians chapter 3 and starting at verse 15. Paul says, Now to to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture 
imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. I hope you heard the questions Paul is anticipating. He hears his opponents whispering, but, but what about the law? And how does the law fit with the promise, with the gospel as it comes in grace? And then why then the law if it's something that's not the same that it was? So those are our three questions. That's not only the title of our sermon. I love when I can fit my whole three points into the title of a sermon. But our, our outline is why law, how law, sorry, what law, how law, and why law. What law, how does the law fit, and why law? Why are we given the law to begin with if it was always by promise, always by grace? And, and Paul will get us to the most practical of Christian teaching the role of the law of God and the life of a New Testament believer. We need clarity on this. How do we live? Well, what role does the role, what, what role does the law play? So let's start with our first question. What law? Now, uh, this first question, I have to admit, doesn't come right out of the text. Um, what law wasn't under dispute necessarily with Paul and his opponents? They all agreed. They all assumed that, of course, the law they were talking about was the law of God uh, given to Moses. Uh, the whole of the law, uh, there was no confusion about that. But I would point out just in passing in our first point briefly that there perhaps is no more important question to our whole civilization than this question of what law. In our own day, um, I would trace all of our national, political, cultural warfare to this question. You know, our, our European forebearers fighting the religious wars of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, uh, I think would have thought the, the general later Enlightenment project of uh, a pluralistic society, uh, a freedom of religion is a kind of a crazy thing. They were, they were uh, believed that the whole society needed to be agreed on what was the law of God. They, they believed that they needed a, a transcendent, and whether that was a Roman Catholic tradition or whether it was a Protestant tradition, they fought wars over having clarity on what law they were following, namely whose law. And this is, this is the most basic part of human existence. You know, If you're playing soccer out in the playground as a kid and some other kid comes up and picks up the ball and runs away with it, what are you doing? Uh, why, we're, we're playing soccer. And he said, yeah, well, who says? The playground question of who says. That's, that's where we are. That's where we're living. Uh, we have differences with uh, people across our land on the most fundamental questions of existence, uh, uh, about the nature of things, the nature of reality itself. And the question comes back, well, who says? Do we listen to science or some kind of general consensus? Or do we do what, what feels right or where we've been blown about at the moment? This is, uh, the answer to this question is the dividing line. Uh, if a seeming majority in our civilization continue to believe, as Nietzsche proclaimed, that God is dead, we have killed him, 
and we've replaced God with ourselves, the, the um, divinized self who has the freedom to decide what's right for me and what's wrong for me and what's right for you, that's up to you. If we have made ourselves God, we are in this uh, civilizational structure, what, uh, the struggle comes back down to this very thing. Are, are LGBTQ rights something that is eternal, something that is a law for all people? Uh, abortion, quote-unquote, rights, are they a, a thing that stand on anything? Are they a part of the eternal law, or are they just... You see the struggle we're in, I hope. I hope you need to see that we are not just in a culture war, but we are in a kind of religious war. Culture, we say continually, is downstream of religion. The overthrow of the Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview that held America together with a kind of bland rationalism, that is dead. Do we know on what basis we ultimately fight for the causes we care about, the causes uh, for, for, the, for the unborn, for the ontology of gender? The world is crying out, who says? And someone's morality will prevail. There will be a law made. There will be an interpretation of reality that has a gun at the end of it. That is uh, the, the, the real situation that we are in. This question of what law is important for us. All this to say that Paul assumes this. He assumes that we might call the, the need of the first use of the law. He doesn't bring it up in our text, but it's, it's in the background. The first use of the law being uh, uh, the, the civil use, that the law is to be used to restrain evil, which uh, I had thought would be one of the most you know, bland things you could say. I, I was invited to give a five-minute uh, devotional and prayer before the Chatham County of Commissioners, and I went in and thought I was saying pretty broad you know, Christian minister stuff. Uh, like, you know, we should look at Genesis chapter 3. You know, we ought to see. We have to make just laws to restrain evildoers. And uh, among the many complaints that came um, back, <laughs> this was one of them. Uh, that, that somehow there was a, you know, that I, you know, we were uh, some, you know, I, I was dangerous for suggesting that, that we ought to look to the, the word of God as a, as a place to begin for deciding what law is meant to govern us. we live in an age where all sin is reinterpreted as a mental health crisis, we indeed will come to uh, differing places on the need of our laws. So it is our duty at some level to be um, a good neighbor, to love our neighbor by putting forth, supporting, uh, making the case for uh, the law of God, which is the way of blessing, is the way of the wise man, who, the blessed man who meditates in the law of God both day and night. This is a heavy question. As we consider the role of the law in the life of the believer, we, we ought not pass too quickly over asking this simple question, well, what law? Of course, Paul assumes the law of God. His opponents, though, are asking a, a different question, not so much what law, but how does the law connect with the gospel? Uh, the promises especially given to Abraham. They, we might hear them asking, sure, okay, we'll concede that the Abrahamic covenant was by grace through faith. You know, we see, okay, Abraham, he didn't deserve, you know, the blessing. He got it by grace. But later on, you see Moses was given the law, and that, that changes everything. Now we've got to keep law. And Paul is, is seeing their question. He begins to answer it in verse 15. Look there with me. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, of course, if you're a lawyer, 
You know that contracts and covenants, even in the ancient world, could be annulled or ratified. It's not that they can't be, but they can't be annulled or ratified by one side of the party, we might say. Uh, or something like a will. Once the person has died, you, know, you can't just you know, change the will because you wanted a bigger share of the money. Or if you had signed a mortgage contract with the bank, it's not as if the bank can go back to the bank and change the terms and the money or that you can go to your home and scratch out some numbers and put in your own numbers. No, but once it's been ratified, you can't change it on your own. And Paul's point is, well, if that's true in uh, human contracts, how much more so with a contract with the unchanging God of the universe who does not and cannot change, he who cannot tell a lie, Romans 3, 4, let God be true though everyone else be a liar, 1 Samuel 15, 29, the Holy One of Israel does not lie. So how does the law fit? Verse 15 begins to answer. It, it, it must fit in a way that neither annuls nor amends God's covenant with Abraham. That continues. Okay, well, uh, Paul can keep, keep explaining. Verse 16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, it does not say, and to offsprings, but rather referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now this could be a very confusing verse on the face of it. As well, as we, as we read this part of the argument, it almost feels like you're on one end of the, or you're, like you're overhearing a phone call. Like when my wife calls her mother-in-law, I have to imagine the other side of the conversation to make sense of what I'm hearing on my side. There's something of that here. Perhaps there's other letters that would fill in the fullness of what Paul means in verse 16. Because uh, this, this argument of offsprings and the many and the one, it's problematic. Uh, we see in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 of Genesis that offspring often refers to many, uh, often refers to a nation, especially in chapter 15, which Paul had just referenced up in chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord had explicitly told him, your offspring will be as the stars of the sky. That's many. <laughs> That's what that word means. So what is Paul talking about? Not offsprings, not many, but one, namely Christ. How does he get there? Well, one level, we need to remember that the reading um, the Bible, Paul is, we might say, assuming an interpretive key. And the interpretive key to this word, this theme throughout the Bible of Zerah, offspring or seed, comes from the first time this promise about offspring appears. That is in the Proto-Euangelion, Genesis 3.15. The promise to Adam and Eve that a seed or an offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The first flash of hope after the fall of man. The first uh, words of the good news of the gospel of Christ given to Eve in Genesis 3.15. This is the way Paul is interpreting the promise even to and through Abraham. That when it comes up as offspring, and of course it's speaking of a nation, a collective, and a source, it has back at the beginning through that word to the original site, um, the sense of the seed, the offspring. Uh, that is the seed of the woman, the one born of a virgin who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Of course, this is one of the dominating themes of all of the Bible. Who will the offspring be? Will it be Adam and Eve's son Abel? Well, no, it ends up being Seth. Will it be um, uh, Ishmael, the firstborn, rightfully, of, uh, of Abraham? No, it will be Isaac. Will it be Esau? No, it will be Jacob. Will it be uh, Jonathan as king of Israel? Or will it be Eliab? No, it will be David. 
and the following the theme of the firstborn, the offspring, the Zerah, of course, is Christ. Uh, Paul packs this all into one tiny verse here, throws it in, uh, assuming they understand what he means. But we, we ought to as we study the Bible together. There is in him, in Christ, of course, uh, a singularity and its fulfillment in, in Christ. All the promises of God have their yes and amen in him. And yet we know in him there is a collective. As we are the body of Christ, we are his church. The promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ and in a derivative way, of course, in us. Even as we number the dust on the ground and the stars in the sky. So that Paul doesn't so much really uh, explain the way that the law fits together with the promise to Abraham, but he kind of shows it in a, in a quick way. Uh, the, the law fits together without annulling, amending, uh, but rather it, it seems to fit organically. It seems to grow into a different, a different phase of history. And Paul explains further in verse 17. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now the 430 years, if you're paying attention, you're clued in, that's about the amount of time that Israel was in slavery, the time of the patriarchs and the time of Moses. It's a shorthand way of referring to Moses. So does, does the giving of the Torah, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, what exactly does that do with the promise, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, affect the Abrahamic covenant? Does it cover it and cut it off? Paul's explaining, no, of course, does not. Does it contradict the terms of God's covenant with Abraham? No, verse 21, he makes it clear. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, verse 21, certainly not. He explains even further in verse 18. Look there. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All this to say that the law of God fits together with the promise of God like a hand in a glove. There is no contradiction, no annulment, no, uh, no amending. Uh, we might helpfully think of it as truly progressing. There is, uh, in a sense, a change, but not a change that affects the, the DNA of the thing. Uh, a polywog, a tadpole, and a full-grown frog don't look like they're related. But they're the same organism in different stages of development. They're the same DNA. We might say the same between an acorn and a tree and a forest. Different stages of development, but the same essential thing. What Paul is getting at here is to show that when the law of God comes, it's a different stage of development, but it doesn't change the central thing. The way of justification has always been by faith alone. The law and the coming of uh, the Mosaic law does not change that at all. It was by promise, by grace, unilateral to Abraham, nothing in Abraham to commend himself. And it is by promise, by grace, unilateral to you with nothing in you to commend yourself unto him. The Lord works the same way throughout redemptive history. So how does the law fit? We might say it fits naturally, progressively, organically, without annoying, amending, or contradicting the promise of God. What law? How law? And then briefly, Paul anticipates their third question, verse 19. Well, why then the law? imagine them asking, well, 
It's just a, if, what's the point of the law? If, if the law isn't to climb our way into God, if, if the promise to Abraham uh, stays, why, are, why is Moses given it? And why have we had it? And what do we do with it now? We've already made the point of, of the first use of the law, that is the, the civil use of restraining evil. <clears throat> that is not a question at this point. Paul and his opponents both assume this. And furthermore, Paul will come with say to the third use of the law, for how the Christian is to then live, the, the guiding way of the law of the together is that we ought to live in this way before God. And Paul will come to that in Galatians chapter 5. But what Paul focuses, in his, focuses on in his answer here, we call the second use of the law. It's what we seek to point to every Sunday evening as we study the law, as we read the law of God together. The law of God works as an illuminator to show us our sin and our need of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. Well, let's look together as he seeks to explain it. Verse 19. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Well, that's another quizzical phrase. Uh, what do you mean the law was added because of transgressions? So, so that we wouldn't keep sinning? Like, the, Is it added so that we'll stop sinning? Uh, Paul here doesn't really, again, fulfill his thought. We're getting one side of the, uh, of, the, of the conversation. And we know this because Paul is making the same argument, not only in the book of Galatians, but in the book of Romans. And every time we have a question about what's unclear in the book of Galatians, we can often reference to the larger, more, fulfill, more filled out, clearer explanation that's given in Romans. And there Paul uses almost the same words, the same phrase, answering the same question. In Romans 5.20, Paul says, why did the law come? The law came, why? To increase the trespass. To increase the trespass. And again, uh, it's uh, certainly perhaps counterintuitive. But Dr. John Piper gives a helpful illustration. He says, what you think about your doctor uh, might be innocuous and uh, not that big a deal on most days of the week. But when your doctor gives you a prescription, and you take that prescription, and you throw it in the trash can, it shows what you think about your doctor in a way that hadn't been possible before you received your prescription. There is obvious rock-hard evidence of your inner thoughts revealed in your actions. So it is with the law. The law of God is given. God's will is asserted in black and white, even in uh, rocks for all to see. And what God's people do with that law exposes, highlights, reveals the nature of God's people. The law of God, we might say in this way, is like a mirror reflecting the unseen nature of our souls. What we actually believe and think about God. We might say further, it's like a black light revealing all your guilty stains, perhaps hidden normally. Romans 7, Paul explains even further. He says, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Or we might look to St. Augustine's famous story from his confessions of being a boy stealing pears from a tree, not because he was hungry, not because he was going to eat them, but simply for the thrill of breaking the law, of doing what is wrong. See, the law exposes us. Now, now what Paul is talking about in verses uh, 19 and 20, 
about angels and intermediaries. Uh, the commentators have all kinds of theories, and uh, it's a rather unclear section. Uh, the best sense I can make of it is to, that Paul seems to be arguing that to Abrahamic covenant, God gave it to Abraham directly. That is face to face. But with the Mosaic covenant, Moses you know, speaks of seeing angels at Sinai, that uh, the Lord spoke to the angels, who spoke to Moses, who spoke to the people. So that uh, there's a primacy to the Abrahamic covenant, which is given directly, but perhaps a, uh, a less primacy to the Mosaic covenant, which is given with, with an intermediary. Now, um, that seems to be a, a rabbit trail for Paul in a moment, and I'm sure there is depth here, but it's beside the main point of his argument. Let's return there. He returns to his explanation about why the law in verses 21 and 22 with another quizzical phrase. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, verse 21? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Scripture imprisoned? Doesn't the scripture liberate? Well, of course it does. Uh, Paul here, I think, is using scripture as a synonym, a synonym for Torah, for the law. Law and scriptures, I think, are one idea here as Paul speaks. Commentators uh, seek to, seem to affirm that. So the question is, the law and the scriptures, they work as one who imprisoned everything. Paul, what do you mean? Verse 23, he goes on. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That is, Paul's describing a kind of bondage to the law. He's saying in his previous life of pharisaical Judaism, he had uh, lived and breathed the law of God, washing his hands before every meal just the right way and not, doing, not flipping any light switches on the Sabbath day. And every detail of the law, 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 law. And Paul is showing that all this law, if he was honest really only uh, produced sin, sin, sin. The law of God he was following didn't stop him from sinning, but actually produced pride. It produced self-sufficiency and arrogance. The law didn't stop me from sinning, Paul, since it simply helped to reveal my sin. It, might say it was like a, a prison camp guard every day helping me to realize my need of liberation in Christ. Jesus says in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Paul is moving towards here. Now, Paul is on a roll here explaining the law for us. It's, it's like a mirror. It's like a black light revealer. It's like a prison guard teaching me my need for liberation. And he goes further in verse 24. It says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this translation of guardian... I think is actually not very helpful. The Greek word behind guardian is pedagogue. But when we get our word pedagogy, the study of teaching, some translations have, have traditionally translated uh, a schoolmaster. Uh, but a number of the commentators explain that pedagogue and the, the pedagogue in the ancient Greek uh, civilization was the slave in the aristocratic house that worked seemingly more like a nanny. One who uh, got the kids ready for school, was in charge of their discipline and their training, uh, you know, took care of them day by day. It wasn't actually the school teacher, but the one who, who got them on their way to school and made sure they behaved themselves there. And the thing about a nanny, 
The thing about a guardian we're meant to see is that uh, a guardian can be an essential part. A nanny can be an essential part of aristocratic house, but you're not meant to be nannied forever. Indeed, in the progressive, redemptive history of God, the people of God are meant to come out from under the nanny of the Old Testament law system and into freedom under Christ. This is what Paul is seeking to explain. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, under a nanny. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that's the mystery and the glory Paul takes us to that we will study next time together. The main point being, uh, we're under the law, but no longer under the law as slaves in bondage to it, but under the law as sons, sons who love to glorify a father in heaven, more and more growing up into his likeness, the law being a reflection of his likeness, the very imprint of his character is given to us in the law of God. The law no longer becomes a burden, but is something that reveals our sins, we want to repent of it and draw, draw more and more by the Spirit of God into the likeness of of Christ. What law was our first question? The law of God that we must contend for in our own day. How does the law fit? Both progressively and organically, not contradicting, annoying, or amending the grace of God. And the central question why the law for the believer? Well, I say it, it functions like a nanny fussing at us, showing us our sin, leading us to despair of ourselves, preparing us for freedom in Christ. The second use of the law is the most practical of things for the Christian. The knowledge of the law of God is this thing we must give to our children. Deuteronomy 4 through 6. This is Moses' sermon unto Israel. You bind the law on the sides of your head, on the doors you go in and out. You speak of it all the day. Why? Well, Paul is showing God's plan so that your children might be haunted by it. They might be nannied by it, guardian to it until they grow up, until faith comes and illumines what was perhaps dark before. The work of the law together as we are parents and as a church plays an essential role. It played an essential role in Paul's conversion, and it ordinarily plays a major role in each and every Christian's conversion. Listen to Paul's explanation of it in Romans 7. So, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law, you see, is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. So that each of us may say, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who do I go to be washed clean? How may I be right with God? And the answer for us is given again and again throughout the book of Galatians. It's what's summarized so well for us by the hymn writer. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Father, I pray that you might afflict the comfortable among us. You might bring under conviction those who do not feel or know their need of Christ. Father, I I pray... 
uh, that we might contend for the law of God in our own day, seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves, seeking their own good, seeking the common good. And Father, I pray that we would walk in newness of life in the third use of the law as a, as a way of, of, of living, but never skipping over the second use, always pushing us back to our continual need of repentance, our continual, continual glory in the work of Christ in our behalf. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.